Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Awesome. Today we are continuing our series straight out of context. We're up to week five. And this is a series whereby we are looking at some of the misquoted and misused verses in the Bible. Week number one, we looked at ask anything in my name, which has certainly been used a lot out of context. Secondly, we looked at do not judge. And that was a lot of fun for me because, you know, people often say this, do not judge, you can't judge me. Not understanding that when you say you can't judge me, you're passing a judgment. It's just like totally hypocritical, which I had a lot of fun with that week. Uh, Number three, I have plans to prosper you, says the Lord. Week number four, which was just last week, we looked at the root of all evil. And the root of all evil is not money itself, it's the love of money. It's the desire. It's that craving to have more and not be satisfied with what you already have. That's what we looked at last week. And today, we're going to look at an all-time favourite. This is many, many, many people's all-time favourite verse. And as I say it, many of you will go, yeah, that's mine. But you won't say that because you think I'm setting you up. And so you're not going to do that. But I know intuitively and instinctively that this particular verse is many of your favourite verses. And it's found in Philippians chapter 4. And it's, I can do all things. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 simply says, I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. The YouVersion Bible app has recorded over 123 million downloads of this particular verse. It is a very popular verse. In actual fact, in 2013, it was the most bookmarked verse of that particular year. We see this particular verse on TV, uh, we see it on t-shirts, bumper stickers, coffee mugs and posters. It's even displayed on some of our most famous sports stars. This gentleman up here, some of you may know, some of you may not, but uh, he's a high profile NFL player. His name is Tim Tebow and you'll see that on his eye markings he has Philippians 4 verse 13. It's a verse that inspires hope. It's a verse that provides confidence and it's a verse that has been used as a rallying point for particular causes. While it's one of the most popular verses and most known verses, it's also one of the most least known verses. What do I mean by that? How can it be the most known verse and at the same time be one of the most least known verses? It's because of how the Scripture is used. Not only is it one of the most known, but it's also one of the most misused, misquoted verses in the Bible. Many people today have taken this verse out of context for personal empowerment, a declaration of self-achievement or of ambition and accomplishment. For many, it has been minimised into some sort of motivating motto for materialistic prosperity, career advancement, or athletic success. It often gets used as a blank check, as a promise for whatever you want. 
if I was to ask you, who would like a, a blank check to be able to write whatever number you wanted on that blank check and it was yours? We would all have our hand up, I'm sure. Many treat this verse in much the same light. They treat it like a blank verse that because I can do all things means I can have anything I want whenever I want it. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, maybe it's resonating with some of us. Would that be fair to say? For others, it's a license to do whatever you want. You know, it may be that I, I want to jump off a cliff and I can do that without dying because you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've been ministering for many, many years and it never ceases to amaze me that in a season where we are addressing someone's, an area of someone's life, this verse often comes up to justify what they've just done. It could be that they've just been sleeping around and they say, no, Tony, it's okay. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It could be excess drinking and they found themselves drunk and doing silly things. And that's okay too, Tony, because my Bible says, it's amazing what we do with this particular verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What we need to understand today is that God is not our heavenly bellboy nor is He our divine sugar daddy to fuel our dreams and desires. What I mean by that? God, get me a wife. God, get me a job. Hey God, with that job, I want a promotion. Are you with me? I'd like a new house. I'd like a new car. I want kids. Uh, God, I don't want those kids anymore. <laughs> God, I want a new wife. <laughs> He's not our heavenly bellboy that we can just ring whenever we want to get whatever we want. It's amazing. Uh, Andre was overseeing part of the winter project behind the scenes there and, and I was there helping out and Kath was there helping out. And so BJ was in one of the offices and, and uh, Andre was just, you know, doing the right thing and thinking, you know, what a great little kid she's sacrificing. And so, you know, he wanted to look after her and he said, BJ, um, if you want anything, just text me. Just text me, which was like foolish, foolish. Foolish. There was a reason. You should ask yourself, why hasn't mum and dad said they, she could do that? There's a good reason. And sure enough, our nine-year-old daughter, Andre, can you get me? Uh, Andre, I'm hungry. Uh, Andre, I want a drink. <laughs> All I can say is you bought that on yourself. But God is not like Andre. I mean, He's not our heavenly bellboy that's going to come running whenever we want for whatever we want. And so when it comes to interpreting the Bible correctly, we've learned a few things over the last few weeks. One is that we need to know and understand the context. And to do that, we need to know who wrote the letter. We need to know to whom the letter was written. And we need to know the big theme of that particular letter. Secondly, we've learned that you need to interpret Scripture with other Scriptures. In other words, the best way to understand the Bible is with the Bible itself. And we need to go to other verses to find out what the verse actually means and says in its proper context. And the third thing we've learned is that we need to apply what we've learned. In other words, the Bible is not just a book to be studied, although it is that, but it's more than that. It's also a letter to be lived. 
everything Jesus taught, He had in mind application. Everyone say application. And so with this in mind, let's read this Scripture again in its proper context. Firstly, we need to understand who wrote the letter. The author of this particular letter was an older, wiser, more mature believer, and his name was Paul. Paul arguably wrote most of the New Testament. Some would say it was Luke. Others would say it's Paul, depending on how you measure it. But Paul was an author in the New and of the New Testament. The interesting thing about this particular letter, he was the place in which he wrote this letter. He wrote it from a cold, dark dungeon. This is not like a, a modern contemporary version of prison. This was like old school, dark, wet dungeon. And so he was writing to a church in Philippi. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, a few verses before our favourite verse, it says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. It's amazing. He's in prison, yet he's rejoicing, which is amazing. That at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learnt a thing or two in my lifetime, and one of them is to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learnt the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do this uh, all things through Him who gives me strength. What is the big theme of this passage? What is the overarching theme of this passage? It is simply this. It is contentment, not your comfort. This favourite verse of ours is founded in the big theme of contentment, not your Comfort me. It's found in contentment. Everyone say contentment. In other words, it's not about your dreams coming true, nor is it about your goals being met. But it's about being joyful, satisfied and steadfast, even when life is hard and circumstances seem impossible. A few things that this Scripture is not. See, this Scripture is not about winning. It's not about winning at all. It's about learning to lose victoriously. <laughs> come on, I mean, get, come on. I'm going to say it again because some of you can't just believe I said that. It's like this verse is not about winning. It's about learning to lose victoriously. See, it's not about your football team that you've prayed for that they would win the game. It's how you respond when they lose the game. It's how you respond when you sustain an injury and you can't play on the weekend. That's what this verse is all about. This verse is all about that moment when you don't get picked to play in the team. It's how you respond then. Maybe if we think back to our schooling years and you remember in your PE class, the, uh, the uh, teacher picking two captains and those two captains maliciously started picking people from the group. And you know, they never started with the weakest one. They always started with the best. And they picked this person, picked that person. And as the number's dwindling around you, you find yourself the last man standing. 
How you respond in that moment is what Paul is talking about. This verse is not about winning at all. This is about us losing victoriously. See, when you learn how to lose victoriously, you win every time. Oh, come on and say that again. When you learn how to lose victoriously, you win every time because you can't lose when you know how to lose well. When we're losing, we're winning. When we're winning, we're winning. We're always winning. In Christ, we win. And as believers, we should have this uh, joy and this hope in our heart knowing that no matter what happens to us, we win. What I'm telling you is this. I want you to be the world's best losers. That's why we called this church Victory Church. Because I'm tired and was tired, even as a young man, seeing Christians living anything but a victorious life. I don't want to be just victory in name. I want to be victory in nature. And you can have a victorious nature when you know how to lose victoriously. Because when you lose victoriously, you're still the winner. And when you are blessed and when God does prosper you and you find yourself with the girl of your dreams, you're a winner. And if you don't have the girl of your dreams, you're still a winner, which makes you a winner whether you have plenty or whether you don't have plenty. That's what Paul is talking about. Another thing, it's not, it's not about changing your circumstances, it's about changing you. That's what this verse is about. It's about relying on God's power in order to be content in the midst of circumstances that can't and more than likely will not change. When Paul wrote this letter, he did not find himself transported nor teleported out of prison into the king's palace. No, when he started the letter, midway through the letter, and at the end of the letter, he was still in his dungeon. It's not about changing your circumstances. This verse is about you being changed, you being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And thirdly, it's not about getting you out of trouble. It's about how to live in your trouble. It's about how to learn uh, sorry, how to bear maximum fruit in maximum crisis. That's what this is about. How can I make the most of this horrible and dare I say crappy situation? How can I make the most? Where, where can I get maximum fruit from this situation that I would not have chosen if it was left up to me? But here it is before me and I want to make the most of this moment. That's what this verse is all about. And when we fully and truly understand this verse in its proper context, it will lead to a few things in our life. And I want to talk about them right now. The first thing is simply this. Number one, endurance. Everyone say endurance. Paul says this, I know what it is to be well-fed. I know what it is to be hungry. I know what it is to have plenty. And I know what it is to have nothing. I can do all things can be translated like this. I can endure all things. I can endure riches and I can endure poverty. I can endure uh, plenty and I can endure having nothing. That's what Paul is talking about in this verse. Paul isn't saying that we shouldn't dream big dreams. But he is reminding us that we can endure the crushing feeling of defeat if and when those dreams are not realised. Paul is not encouraging us to go out and conquer the world so much as how we should respond when the world conquers us. In Philippians chapter 3, which is the chapter just before, chapter 4, deep, I know. 
Paul says this, verse 12, Not that I have already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. Everyone say press on to take hold of that which Christ took a hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do. Sometimes this comes down to one thing. All these things in our life, one thing, forgetting what is behind. That's a word for some. God wants to show up and then when we lean in, we're going to realise God wants to heal us of, of past hurts and past pains and past disappointments. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on, there it is again, toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Someone once said this, you don't determine your greatness by your talent or wealth as the world does, but rather by what it takes to discourage you and make you quit. You're only as great as what it takes to make you quit. My word to you this morning is simply this. Don't be so quick to quit, but endure. Paul writes in another letter, endure like a good soldier. Endure, don't give up. I think we live in a world and a dispensation where people give up so quickly and so easily. They give up on their marriages. They give up on their kids. They give up on their jobs. I mean, oh my gosh, something's changed. I don't know if you've noticed or it's just me, but something's changed about our understanding of longevity. I speak to people all the time. They said, oh, um, I'm not working anymore. I'm unemployed. I said, well, how long are you working your other job? Oh, a long time. I said, no, specifically, how long? Oh, I was coming up for a year. And they're talking like, there's such a conviction. It's almost like, you know, just before they were due for long service leave. I mean, there's something wrong when we think one year is a long time. One year was just 25% of my apprenticeship. And when I finished my apprenticeship, I hadn't even learned anything yet. Come on, we need people who can stick. We need people who can stay around. We need people who can just stay the course, not give up so easily, not give in so easily. People in university one day, it gets hard and then they're not doing university. Hey, if you start, finish. That's my word to all the young people. Finish what you start. Endure like a good soldier. Winston Churchill, who's a bit of a hero of mine, was asked to speak at Harrow, his old school, of which he flunked out of. This is so encouraging. And in 1941, in the middle of war, not the end of war, he was asked to come and speak to this all-boys school. And this is a, a snippet of that speech. He said, never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honour and of good sense. Church, don't be so quick to give up. Don't be so quick to give in. 
but hold your line and stand your ground. So that in another 10 years from now, I can be standing up here preaching at Victory Church, seeing many of these faces. Never give in. When we understand this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it will create an endurance in us like nothing else. Not only will it create an endurance, but it will also give us a supernatural energy. Everyone say energy. Paul says, I can do all things because I'm so strong. I can do all things because I'm so gifted. I can do all things because I'm so awesome. Is that what he said? That would make him arrogant, but he didn't say that at all. He actually gave us the secret of his strength. He gave us the source of his strength. He gave us the power of his strength. He says, I have a strength, but it's not a strength that I have in my own ability. But it's one that comes from a higher authority. It's a strength I receive when I'm found in Christ. Everyone say, in Christ. He says, it's in Christ I have access to a supernatural power that energises me to do all things. That's the context of this verse. In other words, I'm natural, but I serve a God who is super. And He adds His super to my natural, which enables me to live a supernatural life. And when I'm in Him, I'm not operating out of my own strength. I'm operating out of a supernatural higher power and authority. And Paul actually, if anything, identifies just how weak he was. But he learned the secret of how to respond in his weakness and that was to receive the strength of God. And so he came up with this conclusion that when he was at his weakest, he was at his strongest because that's when God could work through him the most. So he says, so when I'm weak, I am strong. God adds His super to our natural. And, and when we go into our prayer closet, whatever that looks like for you, it could be walking the dog, it could be you know, doing the garden, it could be at work and you're in the presence of God, your, your quiet time, whatever that looks like for you, that, that, that's your place where you come out. You might go in there natural, but you come out supernatural. It's kind of like Clark Kent when he went into the telephone booth and he came out Superman. That's what we do. We, we, we go into our prayer closet, natural. We go in like Clark Kent, but we come out Superman and Superwoman. And, and church today, I believe it's like a massive telephone booth. And we've just come in natural. We've come in tired. We've come in cold. We've come in wet. We've come in with things and, and we're going to leave supernatural. We're going to leave supernaturally empowered because we've had time in His presence. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which is another letter to another church written by the same man. And he says this in verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace to me was not without effect. See, Paul understood that God's grace had many facets to it. Most of us, our understanding of grace is limited to this unmerited favour. God has blessed me. I don't deserve it. But because He loves me, He gives me salvation. And that is very much a massive aspect to grace. But it's much, much more than that. And Paul knew it. 
And he says, this grace that was in my life, this grace was evidenced in my life. It wasn't without effect. He goes on to say, no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. Again, he reveals the source of his strength, but the grace of God in me. What an incredible thought. Paul was able to say, I worked harder. Unfortunately, many of us today, we want easier. But Paul was prepared to work harder. And here we are some 2,000 years later, reading from his writings, because he was prepared to work harder, but not in his own strength, because that's where burnout lies, when you work hard in your own strength. Do you know, for all the hard work Paul did, you don't read of burnout. Now, can I just say this about burnout? Because I want to be sensitive, because it is very real, and it's affected many. I get that. And as a pastor, we work through that with people almost on a daily basis. So I'm not here to be unkind to the very real problem that burnout causes. But can I say this? While I mean to be sensitive to that issue, I also want to add to that this, that I do believe it's a word that is often overused, particularly in church life. We're so quick to jump to, I don't want to burn out. You say, can you do this? And they say, no, I can't because I don't want to burn out. I think, what happened to I can do? We jump into I can't. We don't even give God a go because we don't want to burn out. And it becomes a real problem to me, particularly amongst young people that are using the word burnout. And a lot of young people are using the word burnout. And they're not married. And they don't have kids. If you're feeling burnt out now, don't get married. With all due respect, honey, don't get married. Run for your lives. And whatever you do, with all due respect to my kids, don't have kids. Oh my gosh. If you're not coping now, without a wife, husband, or without kids, and some don't even have a job. Oh, just, just saying. I'm just, I'm just, no wife, no kids, no job. Hey, don't want to burn out. Hey, honey, you won't burn out. I promise you. They'll be like looking at a candle. I don't want to burn the candle. While it's not lit, it's not going to burn out. I can promise you that. Being just a little bit naughty, taking a few liberties, I know. Again, can I reiterate the sensitivity of this subject? And some of you are in that right now, and I don't want to be unkind. But I think there's so too many, are so far too quick to just jump on that bandwagon. As a cover-up, to do what they want to do and get on with their own lives. So what happened to this, I can do all things? The answer is found in a greater reliance on Him. See, as a pastor, you may say, by wanting people to be invested in the local church, um, there's a gain for you, and, and that would be fair to say. There is a gain for me seeing people helping out. There is a gain for me seeing people abiding in the Word and applying the Scriptures to their lives. There is a gain, but there's a gain for you too. See, this is what I want you to understand. A lot of people do burn out because they're part of the faithful few. 
And there's a massive majority called the lazy lot. And that has to be changed. It's people often burn out because others aren't taking up their responsibility. And the local church is a family. And in our family, the Rainbow Household, we all have our jobs to do. They are age appropriate and they are gifting appropriate. But they have jobs to do. Our nine-year-old has jobs to do. Why? Because she has a responsibility as a family member. And our three kids have jobs to do as a responsibility of being a family member in our church. And I try to bring the why behind it. How we are never more like God than when we are serving and being generous. It's also caring to want to help out around the house. Because I say to our kids, I say, if you don't do this, mum will have to do it or I'll have to do it. And you're going to put unnecessary pressure on us when you can alleviate some of that pressure. And so I've said to our kids, I do not want my wife to be burnt out, worn out and become an old hag. Because you wouldn't help out. Yeah? And so maybe the answer to burnout is not doing less so much as everyone doing some more and helping out those that are already serving. And can I just say this? I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I believe that God has made you a priest to bring the kingdom to wherever you are. So this is not about everyone working for the church and doing everything in the church. I get that. But we do have some family responsibilities. And we should not have to be begging or pleading for people to get involved in a roster. Right now, many of us were kept dry because of willing people who ran out there and gave us an umbrella. God didn't do that. People did. People have been touched and empowered by the love of God who see the bigger picture. Wouldn't it be great if they could have a rest next week? And some of us who experienced the pleasure and the privilege of what others did for them, now we do it for others. We're never more like Christ than when we are being generous, when we are giving and when we are serving and when we are caring. And that's our responsibility as family members which is something different than bringing the kingdom to where we have been placed in our marketplace. It could be at the school, it could be at your workplace, it could be whatever it is that you do at that level. Does that make sense? This morning. A closing note on that would be this. I know that there are some people who have been guilty of burning out while serving God. I'll concede that as a pastor. But I think it would also be fair to say, I also know of far more who are guilty of not serving at all. And if you're honest with yourself, while you may know someone who got burnt out, I know far more people that are guilty of not doing anything at all. Challenge, leave it with you. When we understand this scripture, we will have a greater understanding of endurance we will have more energy. And thirdly, we will have enthusiasm. As a band come up, that'd be great. See, endurance is not just about hanging around. Endurance isn't just about showing up. It's about doing life with enthusiasm. Can you imagine as parents, 
You get your child to come out with you, but they're not happy about being with you. And that attitude, they say, well, you should just be happy I'm here. No parent's ever happy with that. Because they don't want your body, they want you. They want you. And God's like that. He doesn't just want us here, He wants us here. He doesn't just want our body, He wants our mind, our soul, our emotions. He wants every part of our being. At this point in time, it's worth just mentioning again where this letter that Paul wrote was written from. It was written from jail. A deep, dark dungeon. And he says, I rejoice. I rejoice. What Paul is saying when he says, I can do all things, he's saying this. I can be enthusiastic in all things and in all situations and at all times. See, the word enthusiasm comes from two little Greek words, entheo. And entheo simply means to be in God. 36 times, in the letter to the Ephesians, of which Paul was also the author, he uses the word in God, in God, in Him, in Christ, in God, in Him, in Christ, in God, in Him, in Christ. 36 times he talks about a life that's founded, not in your strength, not in your wisdom, but a life that's found in Christ. And when you find yourself in Theo, you find yourself living an enthusiastic life. Life. So we don't just show up. We show up with joy. We show up with a smile on our face. We show up with a glint in our eye. We show up with a spring in our step. We show up ready to do whatever is asked. And so when our, 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 our incredible, illustrious pastor, Pastor Cass says, hey, I had this word, I had this thought. I want you to lean in. We don't go, oh, what for? Fold up. No, we, 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 we calm, enthusiastically say, this sounds like a good idea to me. Let's lean in. Because to be enthusiastic is to be in God. I looked up the word enthusiasm and in the Oxford Dictionary, the word enthusiasm means to rave, to go into raptures and to go overboard. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you raved about God? I mean, you know, I've been told all the time he raves on, doesn't he? Yes, I do. I'm very excited and very enthusiastic about this life which is to be found in God, in Christ and in Him. When's the last time you went just a little bit overboard? That's a little bit overboard. Peter went overboard and he walked on water. Have you thought about that? Come on, this is the enthusiastic life, full of energy. It's David running at the Goliath. It's not David's, oh, my God, I shouldn't have done this. This was a bad idea. No, David's got a glint in his eye. He's got a spring in his step. He's got a sling in his hand and he's running at the giant. And the giant, giant's trying to intimidate him. He says, who is this that you send a dog out to attack me? And he says, yeah, 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 blah, 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 whack. And it's so cool. He's got a sling in his hand and a rock and he says, I'm going to cut your head off. I mean, that's audacious. That's, he hasn't even got a sword, but he's got a plan. I'm going to knock him out. I'm going to grab his sword. I'm going to cut his... He's got a plan. It's awesome. You know, Goliath, how are you going to cut my head off? You haven't got a sword. He's like, yours, bang. I mean, it's just... So Winston Churchill says this, success in life is often nothing more than going from one failure to the next with undiminished enthusiasm. 
That's what it's about. It's learning how to lose victoriously. See, when you know how to lose victoriously, which is the context of this verse, you'll go from one failure to the next, one failure to the next, one failure to the next. Because you know success is coming somewhere. has to. And if I do that to the rest of my life and I don't see any success, I get to be with God in heaven, in Christ. Ha, we win. Enthusiasm is not a feeling, it's a discipline. Worship is not something we do when we feel like it, although sometimes it is. But it's something we do even when we don't feel like it. And this is what the Bible calls the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. The scholars are divided over who wrote the book of Hebrews. But there's a large proportion that would say Paul, the same author of Philippians, the same author of Ephesians, the same author of Corinthians wrote Hebrews. Whoever it was said this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that confess His name. So there's times when we praise Him because we feel like it. And there's times we don't. And that's called the sacrifice of praise. John Wesley, an incredible reformer in the 1700s, the founder of the Methodist Church. Incredible man, used in incredible ways by God. He wrote 233 books. He preached over 50,000 sermons. He raised 11,000 preachers. And because of him and his ministry and faithfulness and obedience to God, one third of England was saved at that time. But I want to read to you an extract from his diary. Sunday, May 5th. I preached at St. Anne's. Was asked not to come back. That's encouraging, isn't it? Not. That night I preached at St. John's. I can't go back there. 12th of May. I preached at St. Judas. Not allowed to go there again. May 19, I preached at St. Paul's. I can't return. That night I preached on the street and I was kicked off. Can you feel the weight and the discouragement? What's the point? What's the point? What's the point? Maybe for some of you parents, Monday I asked them to make their bed, did not respond. Tuesday I asked them to make their bed, that didn't happen. Wednesday, what's the point? May 26, I preached in a field. Farmer set his bull on me. June 2nd, I preached on the edge of town and I was kicked off the highway. That night, I preached in a field and 10,000 people came to Christ. question, what would have happened to all those people who responded to Christ Sunday night if he'd given up Sunday morning? So you don't just endure. This isn't just endurance. This is joyful endurance. This is endurance knowing that, you know what, the best is yet to come. If it didn't happen in the field and if it didn't happen on the street and it didn't happen at St. Jude's or St. Mary's or St. Peter's or St. Paul's or St. James, it's going to happen somewhere. 
And that's the good news. And that's why we can afford to be enthusiastic people. In Psalm 42, found in the Old Testament, it says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Some people say that when you talk to yourself, it's the first sign of madness. That is not true. It's not whether we talk to ourselves or not, because we all do it. The question is, what are you saying to yourself? That's the question. And so David found himself in a predicament. He found his soul getting downcast. Maybe you're downcast this morning. David's response was to talk to himself. So, hey, soul, why are you so downcast? Hey, come on. What do you have to be so downcast about, oh my soul? Hey, soul, I want you to stop this nonsense. Why are you so disturbed within me? What's going on? Who gave you power and authority over my life? Soul. Hey, get into line, soul. And then David rebukes his soul and says, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise Him. Self-talk is not the first sign of madness. It all depends on what you're saying because we all do it. And we've got to talk to ourselves, but we've got to talk to ourselves with the Word of God, not with our doubts, our thoughts and our feelings. This verse, when properly understood, is empowering, hopeful, confidence building and unifying. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 